Good morning. I was out carousing with the bishops last night, and uh, I don't know how well my throat's going to last today, but uh, we will see. They were celebrating the wedding of their daughter. Uh, we weren't carousing uh, any, in, in any terrible way. Well, I'd like to know, are there any real estate agents in the audience? If you're a real estate agent, sell your, raise your hand. All right. I, I just did that because I wanted to know if Vance was uh, in the audience today, that was all. No, um, when a real estate agent is selling a house that is structurally sound, but it needs a facelift, what do they tell the client? They say that this house has good bones, right? This house has good bones. Uh, fundamentally, it's sound, even though there's a lot of work to be done on it. Maybe it needs new carpet or new paint. Maybe the appliances need to be upgraded. Um, the kitchen or the bathrooms might need a remodel. And whoever buys the place is going to have to tear out a lot of stuff and tear it down to the bones, right? But it's going to be recreated into a new, uh, modern, more functional place to live. Well, in today's passage, we're going to see that God is the ultimate real estate agent, or maybe the ultimate house flipper, okay? God is going to tear this world down to its bones, and he's going to remodel it into something new. And the question that we'll want to think about today is what our part in that process is going to be. Will you, will I live in that new house or not? Now we're continuing our study of uh, the book of Hebrews. We're gonna be in Hebrews chapter 12. You'll wanna turn there. And uh, I'm gonna begin reading in verse 25. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then. But now he has promised, saying, Yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Now, this passage is a continuation of the passage that Robert uh, spoke on last week. He spoke last week on Hebrews uh, 12, 18 to 24. And if you're here, you'll remember that in Hebrews 12, 18 to 24, uh, the author of Hebrews contrasts two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And they stand for two covenants, the two covenants that the author of Hebrews has been talking about uh, in this book uh, for the last 11 chapters. Mount Sinai was where Israel met with God to enter into the old covenant, as 
the author of Hebrews calls it, the covenant mediated by Moses and stipulated by the laws of the Old Testament. And when God came down to Mount Sinai, um, no one was able to touch the mountain for fear of being killed. There uh, were these fantastic uh, phenomena, thunder and lightning and fire and smoke and a great uh, trumpet blast, a, a great earthquake. And the terror was so great and God's voice was so awesome that the people of Israel begged not to have to hear God's voice. They begged that only Moses would be allowed to hear the voice of God. They were going to stand far away and wait for Moses to come down from the mountain. That was the experience of those who entered into the old covenant with God, a covenant that the author of Hebrews has now been arguing for 11 chapters has been superseded by the new covenant, the covenant offered in the good news in the gospel of Jesus, God's son. And that was represented by the other mountain, Mount Zion, the place where God's temple was in Jerusalem. But the author of Hebrews is not talking about, in those verses, Mount Zion here on earth. He's talking about the one in heaven. It isn't the earthly temple that represented uh, God's presence among his people, but the heavenly temple, the place where God's presence really dwells, what the author of Hebrews calls the new Jerusalem, the place where God and his people will live together forever. This is the place that the author of Hebrews has been arguing Jesus gives us access to in the new covenant. So that was last week. In Hebrews 12, 18 to 24, the author says that his readers have been brought near to this heavenly mountain. They're standing at the base of the mountain and they have to make a choice. And that brings us to our passage. So notice what uh, our author says in verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those Israelites standing at Mount Sinai did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Now, let's think back on those Israelites who entered into the Old Covenant. You remember the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament. God had sent Moses to tell the Egyptian Pharaoh to let his people go, right? And at first, Pharaoh refused. Uh, and uh, God sent a series of 10 divine judgments on Egypt. And eventually, that led to Pharaoh relenting. And the people of Israel began then to leave the country en masse. And then Pharaoh changed his mind, right? He sent his army after the fleeing Israelites. And the people of Israel cried out to God for help. And you remember, God provided a way of access across the Red Sea to rescue him, rescue them, and then he destroyed the army of Pharaoh. 
And then God led the Israelites to Mount Sinai, where, as I said, he appeared to them in fire and smoke and lightning and thunder and an earthquake to make a covenant with the nation, to make the old covenant. And as I said, the people of Israel were too afraid of the powerful voice of God, and they begged not to have to hear him, but to have Moses mediate for them instead. So our author of of Hebrews in 1225 says that the people of Israel refused to listen to him who warned them on earth. And in fact, you remember the rest of the story, they continue uh, throughout the wilderness to refuse to listen to God's voice, right? They refuse to trust and obey God as he led them through the wilderness to the promised land. So remember what happened when they eventually came to to Kadesh Barnea, to the, to the very doorstep of the promised land. Remember, they sent in 12 spies to check out the land, to find out uh, whether or not this was a place uh, that's worth obtaining. And when those spies came back, uh, they said, yeah, this place is great. This is, this is a land flowing with milk and honey as, as it was sold to us. Uh, this is uh, everything that it was cracked up to be. However, 10 of the spies also said, but the people who live in the land are fierce warriors. Uh, They're giants, right? Remember they said, we appeared like grasshoppers to them. We're gonna get uh, wiped out if we try to take them on. Their cities are impregnable. We're gonna be destroyed. And so the people freaked out. Uh, only two spies, you remember, Joshua and Caleb, were optimistic. They told the people to have faith in God. They told the people that they needed to trust this God who had led them out of Egypt and had destroyed Pharaoh's army and who had sustained them in the wilderness. Uh, They needed to have faith in the God who had promised to give them this land. And so what did the people do? Well, they took a vote and they decided to get rid of Joshua and Caleb and Moses and go back to Egypt. God had spoken and they had refused to listen to his voice. And you know what happened next. In fact, we read about it in Hebrews 3 and 4 when uh, the author is reflecting on Psalm 95, which also talks about these events. Uh, He says, uh, um, God swore in his wrath that that faithless generation would wander in the wilderness until they were all dead. They wouldn't be allowed to enter the land. Only their children would be allowed to enter. So, Our author in Hebrews says to his readers, you guys aren't standing at Mount Sinai ready to enter into the old covenant. You're standing at Mount Zion ready to enter into the new covenant. See to it that you do not refuse the one who is speaking. For if those did not escape who refused him who warned them on earth... 
how much less will we escape who turn away from the one who warns from heaven? If we turn away from the one who has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ, the very image of the invisible God, the final revelation of God, as the author has told us in Hebrews chapter one, if we turn away from the one who has spoken to us through his son, we will be lost. We will be destroyed. In the gospel proclamation, that is, in the good news that God has begun to make all things right through the coming of the Messiah, his anointed king, the proclamation that we can be reconciled to God and experience the blessings of the new covenant because of the sacrificial death of God's son, Jesus, and because of his resurrection and his exaltation. In that proclamation, God is speaking from heaven to the audience of the book of Hebrews, and he's speaking to us. See to it that you do not refuse his voice. Respond in faith to the gospel. Acknowledge that Jesus is who he says he is, God's son and king, and that his death paid the penalty for your sin, and that he rose from the dead as Lord of the universe, and that by acknowledging this and bowing the knee to Jesus, repudiating your rebellion against God, and submitting to his rightful claim of lordship in your life, you will be saved. You will enter into that new covenant relationship. And that relationship's incredible. First of all, as I said, it means the forgiveness of your sins. God's wrath will no longer rest on you. It also means that you'll be filled with the spirit of God that God's presence will inhabit your life, that he'll lead you, that he will transform you into a new, better uh, person, the person that he intended you to be. It means that you can come boldly before the throne of grace, as our author says in Hebrews chapter four. But even more, it means that you will inherit that perfect remodeled house, the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation where God's presence dwells and where you will live uh, with him forever. So take a look at verses 26 and 27 in Hebrews chapter 12. The author says, this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken uh, as of created things so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. He says, God's voice shook the earth at Mount Sinai, but in the future, at the end of the age, God's voice will shake all of creation to the extent that the old temporal fallen structures of this age will be done away with and only the permanent foundation 
will remain. God is going to tear this creation down to its bones and totally remodel it. He's going to make the new creation. Now, the idea of the new creation uh, requires some explanation because the relationship between this old creation and the coming new creation is not uh, entirely clear in Scripture. In one sense, there's a discontinuity between this old creation and the coming new creation. Um, if you turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 for a second, that's just a few pages down the road here in your Bible. 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading at verse uh, 3. You can follow along with me. Peter says this, Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintained this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And if you skip down to verse 10, it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And then in verse 12, we are looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. According to this passage, it seems like the old creation is going to be completely destroyed and replaced by a totally different, totally new uh, creation. And uh, Revelation 21 leaves a similar impression. It says when it's uh, talking about, or right before it talks about the coming of the new Jerusalem, it says the first heaven and the first earth passed away. But according to Hebrews 12, it isn't quite the case that there is a complete discontinuity between the old creation and the future new creation. And that's important theologically. Okay, that makes sense theologically. Because there's something fundamentally good about this old creation. And that good stuff, the bones, as it were, whatever those happen to be, that good stuff will remain. And this is appropriate because remember when God created uh, the universe, what was his declaration? It is good. In fact, when he finished creating everything, he says, it is very good. Okay? And this goodness of creation uh, and the continuity of the old creation and the new creation is important. It's, it's the reason why our bodies, the resurrection of our bodies, 
is so important to our salvation. See, according to the Bible, our salvation isn't complete when we turn to Christ in faith and are reconciled to God. Our salvation is complete when our bodies are raised from the dead. And that's because we human beings are not just spirits, okay? We are embodied spirits. We were created as embodied spirits. Um, Having a body tied to this physical creation is essential to who we are as human beings. As human beings, we were created to rule over this creation on behalf of God. We weren't created like the angels, okay? God's spirit beings. I'm not talking about the baseball team that plays in Anaheim, okay? Um, We weren't created like the angels. They were pure spirit, and they were created to dwell in heaven and serve and worship God there. We were created as God's enfleshed servants, okay? To dwell in this physical universe and serve and worship God here. That's why God is not going to just destroy the physical universe and have us live in heaven for eternity. You know, the old floating on clouds and and playing harps kind of picture of salvation. He's going to remodel this creation, a creation in which we, in our resurrected and glorified bodies, uh, will live and carry out our human responsibilities forever. And yet, of course, the new creation is going to far exceed the first creation, even as our resurrection bodies are going to far exceed our present mortal bodies, as as Paul uh, points out in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, the Bible doesn't give us uh, a lot of information about what the new creation will be like, but it does give us some idea. First of all, the Bible describes the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, as a place of total peace, a place of total harmony, total shalom. All the good, harmonious uh, relationships that God had created in the beginning, you remember them, the relationship between God and humanity was a harmonious relationship. The relationship between one human being and another was a harmonious relationship. And the relationship between mankind and nature was a harmonious relationship. Those were destroyed uh, in the fall when mankind decided to be like God. But they are going to be restored in the new creation. So you remember it says the lion will lie down with the lamb, for instance. The child is going to play on the adder's den. Uh, The uh, whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. Um, It says uh, uh, people are going to beat their swords into plowshares. They're not going to uh, learn war anymore in the vision in Isaiah. In, uh, In Revelation, 
John tells us that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, uh, that there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any crying or mourning or pain, for the former things have passed away. So first, the new creation will be a place of perfect relational and emotional peace. Secondly, the Bible depicts the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, as the place where God will dwell with his people forever, where heaven comes down to earth. In Revelation 21, John sees the new Jerusalem, which is an image of the new creation, coming down out of heaven from God. And he hears a voice say, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God will be God with them. So in the new creation, we will dwell in, in open, personal intimacy with God. We will have direct, face-to-face experience of God's love and grace and beauty and glory forever. And finally, the Bible says, in the new creation, redeemed humanity will live out forever and in perfection its role as God's representative rulers on earth. Remember that when God created humanity, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, he told them, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that walks on the ground. We were created to rule over creation on behalf of God. We were created to be God's vice regents. And that's partly what it means to be made in the image of God. We are to represent God's rule, God's kingdom in this world. And in the new creation, that's exactly what we'll do. Uh, Turn over to Revelation chapter 22, or or I can turn there and read it for you, but in Revelation uh, 22, um, in the closing words of the description of the New Jerusalem, starting in verse three, it says, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them. And the final words, and they will reign forever and ever. Notice that? That is, they redeemed humanity in the new creation will finally fulfill the role for which they were created. They will reign over creation forever and ever. All right, that's the new creation. I would be remiss, however, if I didn't say something about the opposite, about what happens to those who do not inherit the new heavens and the new earth. I need to say something about hell. 
The depictions of hell in the Bible are of a place of terrible torture. Hell is depicted as a fire that never burns out and as a place of agony and pitch darkness. Life in hell will be torment. But I think we get something of a a wrong impression about this. We often think of hell primarily as a place where a vindictive God is going to send people to be actively punished uh, for all eternity for their bad deeds, okay? And people certainly do suffer the consequences of their sin in hell. God's judgment will fall upon them. But uh, there's another side to the coin as well. And I'm speculating a little bit when I say this, though I think my speculation is informed uh, by scripture. But hell isn't a place, first and foremost, where God sends people because of his indictiveness. It's a place where you choose to go. Okay? Um, If people choose to live independently of God, as much as it breaks his heart, he will allow them to do that forever. Hell is an existence without the presence of God. In our world, the world that we inhabit right now, we experience life and love and beauty and joy and fulfillment because God's presence and God's grace are operative in our world. But hell is a place where God's presence and grace have been withdrawn. A world without God is a world without life and love and beauty and joy and fulfillment. It's a world where you are forever consumed with your own self-will. People will go to hell because they choose it for themselves because they don't want God as God in their lives. They want to be God. And so God lets them. And the problem is they're not really God, right? And a life devoid of the true God is a shrunken, lonely, uh, terrible, tormented life. It's a life you don't want to experience. So the author of Hebrews is saying God is going to remodel his house. He's going to get rid of the old furniture and the old fixtures and the old carpet and he's going to get rid of the squatters who have been living in his house. He's going to let his kids live in his house instead. He says, the author of Hebrews, God is offering an eternal, glorious life, the most fulfilling life ever in the new heavens and the new earth. But you can only live there under the lordship of Christ. If you refuse Christ, you'll be treated 
like squatters in the old house. You'll be evicted forever and taken away with all the old furniture and fixtures and carpet when the owner remodels his house. And your next home will be unspeakably horrible. But if you respond to him who is speaking, as our author asks us to do, you'll be treated like the heirs. You'll move into the new house and you'll live there forever with the owner, your father, enjoying its delights and his loving presence, his loving relationship without end. Okay, so where does that leave us? Well, it seems pretty obvious to me that we have a decision before us. Are we going to refuse him who is calling from heaven or are we going to respond to the call of the gospel? So if you haven't yet put your trust in the work of Christ on your behalf at the cross, if you haven't yet acknowledged your rebellion against God and your need for a savior and your willingness to repudiate your own autonomy and acknowledge that Jesus is your only rightful Lord, you need to do that today. And all you have to do is talk to him about that. Just tell him that you realize uh, your life has been centered around your will and not his will, and that you have rightfully incurred his condemnation. Tell him that you believe that Jesus died for your sins, for your willful rebellion against God, and that he is your only true Lord. If you do that, you can look forward to an eternity in God's new creation. And you can do that this very moment while I'm speaking, or if you want, uh, you can come talk to me afterwards and I can, I can help you with that. But I suspect that most people here have already made that decision. So if you have made that decision, the author of Hebrews has uh, another application for you. Uh, take a look at verse 28, Hebrews 12, 28, the end of our passage. He says, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Okay. Um, if you have already responded to the offer of uh, salvation, the good news of God's kingdom in Christ. He, the author of Hebrews says, let gratitude and reverence uh, lead you to a life of service to God, working for his goals, working for uh, his values, living out his virtues in this world. Now, I'm not gonna develop that part of it, um, Chapter 13 of Hebrews will develop this idea. What does it look like to live a life of gratitude and reverence uh, to God? So what I'm gonna ask you to do maybe this week is spend some time reading Hebrews chapter 13 
and reflecting on that, praying about that, and, and thinking uh, or, or asking yourself each day, how can your gratitude for the salvation that God has given you, for the future of the new heavens and the new earth, how will that play itself out more fully in that day? How will you, uh, using the language of uh, John the Baptist, how will you decrease and he will increase in your life this week? All right, well, let me just close with this word. God is going to remodel his house into everything that it was always meant to be. And he's going to let his children live there and enjoy it with him forever. Will you be there? Amen.